King Louis XI, king of France in the 15th century, um, and a fashion trend center with a fancy hat and everything there. Um, <laughs> uh, he was a devout believer in astrology of all things. Uh, he was impressed when it was rightly predicted that a lady of the court would die in eight days. And so uh, fearing accurate prophecy, how it might pose a danger to his rule, um, he decided to have the, the guy that predicted the you know, woman dying ordered that he be thrown from a, a window on his given signal uh, to kill him, to make sure he wasn't making predictions about his own death and stuff like that. Um, the astrologer um, was brought up and looked around the kings where he was there in that upper chamber uh, where the window was open. And the astrologer looked around and, and when he arrived, he perceived there was something tense and wrong. So King Louis questioned him, you claim to understand astrology and to know the fate of others. So tell me at once, what will your fate be and how long will you live? And the astrologer replied, I shall die just three days before your majesty. <laughs> he was also, King Louis XI was also called uh, Louis the Prudent, uh, uh, but probably he was prudent to let the astrologer live. Uh, but uh, except for this, astrology is totally wacko and untrue, and it's not a correct predictor of future things. Um, uh, I hope you, you're not playing around with astrology because uh, you, you as, as a Christian, you have someone some that's actually real and has power in predictive nature, and that is the Bible. We don't need astrology. We have the word of God that uh, uh, tells us, uh, you know, not only uh, the future in Bible prophecy, but it's, it's really quite magical. And when you look at the Bible, you almost see it as a mirror seeing yourself. Um, you know, and, and it exposes things that you need to hear about, whether you like it or not. Um, when, when I read the Bible, I'm constantly reminded, oh man, I'm so flawed. And, I, and the Bible kind of pins me down. And, and I love the Bible that it's corrective in nature. And it's, it's, um, it's good, you know, um, to, to have those corrective words from the scripture. And, and hopefully you're a good recipient of those words. When you read the Bible and you see yourself in the mirror and you think, man, I need to fix that. Uh, that's what the Bible does. Well, that's what John the Baptist was doing. When he was out there speaking the word of God in the wilderness, John the Baptist, well, as it turns out, uh, he would speak hard words, but the people saw themselves in the mirror of the word of God and uh, led to their repentance and their baptism, their baptism unto repentance. And, um, and that's the forerunner. Repentance is sort of the forerunner to salvation. Um, you know, to receive grace you need to first repent of your sins. Um, and John begins to cut that trail, you know, leading the way to Jesus, the Messiah. And here in Luke chapter three, we're gonna see John filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking that word. As we touched on it a little bit on, on the weekend services, let's take a look. It's uh, Luke chapter three, verse one. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, uh, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Verse two, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, 
the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. The first thing we see here is this list of impressive names. <laughs> uh, and five of the seven people listed here are particularly helpful in nailing down the date when this actually happened. Uh, and this is kind of interesting because it's important to know when Jesus lived and, and ministered and uh, getting our dates uh, correct. And, and what I love about the dating of this is um, some, of the, some of the historians disagreed but archeological digs continue to confirm all the biblical um, you know, references, dates, people that were in power at the time, even though the world has constantly criticized by, well, we know that, you know, one of the big ones, by the way, I'll talk about this maybe more later is um, Pontius Pilate. Um, there were a lot of so-called scholars for, for many, many years, up until the 1960s. They said Pontius Pilate never existed. He's a figment of the New Testament writer's imagination. They made up a character and they called him, you know, false and the Bible's full of errors and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but once again, um, you know, that would be wrong. Let's talk about some of these people because it will nail down the date. We'll know the exact time when this actually happened. The first one listed here is Tiberius, um, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and he would be the Roman emperor from uh, A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. Um, he, he was born in 42 B.C. Um, but if you remember, he would succeed his stepfather, the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. So he was the, descent, you know, the next one after Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Now, it says in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, so 14 plus 15 equals 29. So this, this helps us to understand um, around with that, uh, that we're talking about AD 29 is about when we're talking here. Um, so, you know, Tiberius was, was clever, uh, but a cruel um, uh, emperor, and he had um, sort of world-conquering goals and what have you. Uh, but that, that was the guy large and in charge. And then the local Roman power would be Pontius Pilate, um, and, um, and, you know, the notable dates about Pontius Pilate, he'd become the fifth governor of uh, Judea. Uh, Pontius Pilate, Pilate um, was governor of Judea, verse one tells us. Um, and he was appointed uh, in AD 26 to uh, 36. That, that was his, they believe, his time when he was there. Now, I told you earlier, some people said that Pontius Pilate didn't exist uh, until it was great. In 1960, they were doing some archaeological digs there at Caesarea Maritima. We shot some video. This is one of our first stops when we go to Israel. It's not far from the airport uh, near um, you know, Tel Aviv, but it's on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Caesarea Maritima is what it's called. Of course, a Roman, uh, this was a hippodrome where they raced chariots like in the Ben-Hur uh, movie. Um, it was like a, you know, a sort of an amphitheater type thing but it was a race center. But there's also this huge theater there uh, where we uh, get to sing some songs and do a little Bible study um, there. But um, it's really kind of a beautiful spot on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, they've been digging there even uh, recently, but this is, this is a replica of the stone that they found right there in Caesarea Maritima. And it, it basically says to the divine Augustus Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Now this, this is one, we got the video of the real stone in the museum. This is Israel Museum. Mike and I were in there filming this stone. That's the one they found and it had perfectly chiseled in there 
uh, proving the archaeological, by archaeological digs that the Bible was right. It has just enough written there. It has um, the information about Pontius Pilate. Um, archaeological digs continue to prove the Bible, and it's kind of cool how that happens all the time. Well, after, so you got uh, Tiberius, you got Pontius Pilate. Um, then you have uh, Herod, um, who was, um, you gotta remember there were different Herods and what have you, but this was Herod Antipas. Uh, he was the tetrarch of the Galilee uh, region and uh, Para uh, from 4 BC to AD 39. Um, and um, eventually he would have John the Baptist imprisoned and he was the guy who would behead John the Baptist. And you know that story, uh, quite a story there. But this guy was a uh, wicked dude. Um, and he's m- mentioned here. So all these players, uh, it's, it's funny how, remember, Luke is the one, Luke is the gospel writer that helps us understand the historicity and the accuracy of the gospel account. That's why these guys, you know, um, these coins that are minted under Herod, um, Herod, uh, you know, Antipas, um, you can remember him as Antipasta for you Italian people. Uh, um, Herod Antipas, he, he was the one who had, uh, the, his coins were minted, which gave more confirmation to the timing. Um, but these coins in this picture here were minted in AD 29, uh, the exact same year that we're talking about. He um, would probably uh, start to hate John the Baptist, maybe even behead him within that same year that he minted the coins that were after his insignia. Um, the, the other guy that's mentioned is Philip, um, the Tetrarch. And if you've been to Israel with me, you recognize this picture. This is a picture of uh, Caesarea uh, Philippi, where uh, Philip, the Tetrarch, was, was stationed. That's why they called it Philippi. Um, uh, it's, it's where there's this great um, you know, cliff where there was the uh, god Pan, where they worship Pan, not like, and it's spelled like Pan, like Peter Pan, but they, they say Pan. Um, and, um, and this is Herod's brother, Philip, uh, uh, who ruled this region. Uh, he was the half-brother, I should say, of Herod Antipas. So uh, these guys are all in power. There's, there's another guy mentioned here, uh, uh, Lysanias, which uh, we don't really know much about, except for they found this, this plaque, Greek inscription, mentioning Lysanias, the Tetrarch, at a temple found in uh, Abila, in, uh, and his rule was from AD 14 to uh, AD 29. And so all of these uh, listed guys were confirmed as being in power during the time of Christ. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's what the Bible says, so we believe it. But, uh, and, and, and I do, I, I'll, I'll believe the Bible before I believe some uh, history professor on the History Channel. I hope you are that way too. If you wanna be right, go with the Bible. If you wanna be wacko, follow the stupid guys on History Channel, uh, pipe puffing, cardigan sweater wearing professors that think they know more than the Bible. But they're always proven fools, and I love it that you know all these guys were in place at the time, exactly like Luke account. Now, um, the, the two other notable guys that are listed there in the next verse, um, there in verse two is Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests. Um, now, this is an interesting thing that there's two high priests. Um, you know, it's, it's um, uh, why were there two high priests? Well, as it turns out, the Romans started meddling with the high priesthood and they wanted a guy that was sort of a puppet um, more politically. And uh, the Jews would reject some of the high priests that the Romans would put in power. Um, but at this time, there was sort of a political dude that was sort of the Roman guy and then there was a religious guy that was sort of the Jewish guy. And um, they, it seems that they sort of worked together 
during the life of Christ. Caiaphas would be the more political one in this, uh, this old art. Uh, somebody depicted Caiaphas as the one standing and then Annas was the one sitting there. But um, he, was, he still had an active role, Annas did in the Sanhedrin, in the religious stuff, whereas uh, Caiaphas was the son-in-law to Annas uh, and the Romans appointed him into power. Both would be involved with the crucifixion of Jesus. So these, these two guys you should know and they were serving as high priests at the same time. But it, when you put all these leaders together, it does confirm, by the way, the time uh, of, um, of this, um, this event. Um, so pretty important stuff. Um, well, you might say that's not very important to me. Well, it is if, if you're trying to you know, defend the Bible when, when these guys come and attack it. Just want you to know, you can just look it up. You don't even, it doesn't even take much to, to do the homework to find out, did these guys really, were they in power during when the Bible said they were? Uh, it's always right. Well, in the last part of verse two, it says, and the word uh, of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Would you mark that word unto? Um, does anybody's newer translation say the word upon? Anybody? No, I don't think so. Um, the reason that's important is it should be. The word of the Lord came upon. Well, Brett, what's the difference? That, that even sounds like the wrong preposition. What are you talking about? Well, the Greek word here will be familiar to you Bible students. Um, the, the word unto is actually the Greek word epi. Does that ring a bell? Um, and that's an important, uh, it, it should read closer to the word of, the, word of God came upon John. Um, the word epi is, is a word that's used specifically in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Um, do you remember the three relationships? I go over this often because people don't understand this and I think it's good for us to be rehearsed in this. But um, Jesus talked about three relationships we'd have with the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. That's the first preposition uh, that's talked about the spirit of God. He will be with you. And then the second one, and he shall be in you. So those are the first two relationships. And remember, you know, um, Genesis chapter uh, six talks about how the spirit of God will not always strive with man. And the with experience of the Holy Spirit is before you were even a saved Christian. Remember that? Uh, the, um, the Holy Spirit was with you before you were a Christian, tapping you on the shoulder by the spirit of God saying, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. So if you became a believer, you you know, responded to the spirit being with you. Um, I hope you've responded to the, this, the with relationship. But then it says he shall be in you. Um, so uh, if you remember in John chapter 20, um, the, the disciples were hanging out with Jesus. Jesus died. Then he rose from the grave and he came there in John chapter 20 and he breathed on the disciples and said, receive you the Holy Ghost. And, and he breathed on them and suddenly the Holy Spirit was in them. That's that second preposition. I believe that you, when you accept Christ and become a believer, I believe that's when the Holy Spirit is now in you. But there's a third preposition that's noteworthy in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And Jesus was talking about these. These are red letters in the book of Acts. Um, but you shall receive power. Greek word there is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite, boom. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. That's the key word there. Um, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Um, the Holy Spirit coming upon you is that, that Greek word epi. Um, and that's kind of the key operational word. Um, 
You know, uh, this is, you know, interesting. Um, when it says there in Luke chapter three, verse two in our text, it's the same word, uh, a P, which is that Greek word uh, that means to that literally to come upon. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the, the Spirit starts to manifest himself in you and through you. Uh, that's, the, that's the stuff that people get freaked out by. What, brother, we're gonna start swinging from the chandeliers, flopping in the aisles. Well, that's what people that think they're filled with the Holy Spirit like to do uh, whatever, it's not in the Bible. I really like to stick to things that are in the Bible. And man, all you have to do is read the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians chapter 12, the very, that, that chapter spells it out. And, and there's all kinds of good things, interpreting of tongues when, when tongues are given. Um, even a word of tongues is a, is a, a spirit of God coming upon, a P. Um, and uh, you know, um, a word of prophecy, which is edification, comfort, exhortation. Or, or even, you know, discerning of spirits. Do you ever need the spirit to come upon you to just kind of have discernment about what's going on right in front of you sometimes? That's something the Holy Spirit will manifest himself in and through you. Um, and this is something that the church should want. We should desire um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then have the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in the Old Testament, the same thing is true. Remember when Samson would do great feats of strength it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he lifted those you know, 10 ton gates off the hinges of the city, carried them on his back up 30 miles up to the top of a hill. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit came upon Samson. It's that, it's that power of the spirit upon your life. Um, and this is, this is important because John the Baptist was Mr. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think we might miss this part of John the Baptist ministry because we see him preaching the word but I'm gonna say this, one of the greatest manifestations of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. In fact, Paul puts out, if you made a list, which one would tongues be on? How high on the list would it be? At the very bottom, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And yet, isn't it funny how when you talk about the Holy Spirit, everybody's like, just speak in tongues. It's all about tongues. Speak in tongues. Forget about that. Tongues are important and valuable and, and it's something that I see happening in the world and in the church today, as it should but it's also really abused and it gets way too much press. The most important manifestation of the Spirit is the word being spoken in understanding. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. And as it turns out, John the Baptist, as wild of a man as he is, he's gonna demonstrate power by the Holy Spirit, not by slaying people in the Spirit or flopping around in the aisle or swinging from the chandeliers. He's gonna be speaking powerfully the word of God. That's where the greatest uh, display of the Holy Spirit is is in power, in speaking of the word. We've gotta see that. Elizabeth and Zacharias, J the B's parents, were fully filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that. We've been reading this kind of over and over again. And that's why you almost could miss what's happening in verse two when it says, and the word of God came unto, no. The Greek word, api, it's the same word. It's like the spirit comes upon John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And that's why he's gonna speak with authority and with power. Um, so all that to say, kind of important thing to uh, note. Um, by the way, um, you know, when you want the Holy Spirit to come upon you, what do you need to do? Um, well, I believe there's a couple things that are kind of helpful. One thing is for sure, you have to ask. You fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids. You being evil know how to give good, good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask? It's just there for the asking. Now, there is kind of a cool thing in the Bible, and I'm not gonna say every time, but often you'll see the laying on of hands 
uh, by the, the, the church leadership and praying. And I know that that can get kind of weird in some churches. And I promise you, if you come on a Sunday night worship and you wanna have prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not gonna make you speak in tongues and just start saying gibberish and say better buy a Honda or whatever. We're not gonna do that. That's, that's other churches that does that kind of goofy stuff. That's, that's not even biblical. Um, but, uh, but we will pray for the power of the Spirit to come upon you and then wait and see how the Spirit manifests in your life. And it's pretty cool because I've, I've never seen the Spirit not uh, show up if a person's asking. So it's pretty, pretty important, pretty cool stuff. Um, but don't miss this. The, John the Baptist was moving in, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's really important to know that. Well, verse three, and it, and it says, and he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism um, of repentance for the remission of sins. Uh, we talked about this uh, last couple of weeks about John the Baptist's message was not of um, his salvation as much as re repentance. He was paving the way to prepare for Jesus. Jesus equals salvation. John the Baptist equals um, ready for salvation. Like he's prepping the you know, greasing the skids, you know, he's, he's getting it all ready to, to go so that people will want to receive Jesus as their savior. Um, in verse six, it says, uh, well, well, before that, let me, let me, um, let me go back. Uh, when it says he came into all the country about Jordan, one thing that you should know uh, about the country here is um, this is the same country of second Kings chapter two, verses one through 13. You might jot that down right next to this in your Bible when it says in the country, because the exact same geography is kind of shocking. When you go to Israel and you wanna be baptized, if you're there with us, uh, we'll do a baptism, but um, tour groups don't do baptisms where Jesus was literally baptized. I'll tell you why. Because if you wanna be baptized where Jesus was literally baptized, you have to go to the country of Jordan. Um, and on the east side of the Jordan River, down in the desert, it's the least pretty part of the Jordan River. It's like desert, dry, barren, there's weeds everywhere, it's muddy, uh, and it's not conducive for beautiful baptisms, a photo op for tourists in, in Israel. Um, well, Brett, we should go there and do baptisms. Um, well, I, I think it's funny, because uh, you know, the Jordan River is really pretty up toward the Sea of Galilee. Things are really green, and that's where people mostly get baptized, where Jesus did hang around. But, um, but why did Jesus go down there to get baptized of John the Baptist? And what was John the Baptist doing in the, the dry desert? Well, that was the point. He was Mr. Wilderness. Camel skins, locusts, and honey was what he ate, and his hair was all wild because he was a Nazarite. Uh, but he was out there kind of in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus had to go out to him to be baptized. This is interesting. Why there? This is the same place in, you know, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Remember? When Elijah was about ready to take, take off into heaven, he would not see death. He'd go up in a fiery chariot. Remember that? But do you remember the whole thing as Elisha's hanging out with him and, and, it's, and he, he's got a sense that Elijah's on his way out, man. And, and, and Elisha's just hanging on to Elijah saying, I'm not getting, letting you out of my sight. And Elijah's going here and there. And he goes to one town and everybody's like, you know, your master's gonna be gone. You, you know that, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I know. Just shut up and leave me alone. Do you remember that? It's, it's a weird little story. And over and over that happens. Uh, more people come. Elisha, don't you know Elijah? He's out of here now. He, he's not gonna be here for, I know, just leave me alone. And he just keeps going and follow. Finally, as he's clinging to Elijah, Elijah says, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna be leaving. And he says, yeah, but uh, Elijah says, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you whatever he asks. And, and Elisha says, do you remember what he says? 
I want a double portion of the Holy Spirit that you have upon me. If you remember that story. And so Elijah says, well, okay, if you want that, then I'll tell you what, if you see me, if you see me when I go up into heaven, then you'll get that, you'll, you'll get that request. So they go off across the Jordan River. And do you remember what Elijah does to cross the Jordan? Does he get a canoe? No, he takes his coat, just kind of whooshes it over the river and the river parts like the Red Sea parted. And Elijah and Elisha go walking on dry land and while the river, you know, this, this is a pretty radical little deal. Um, and so everybody's like, wow, that Elijah sure is powerful. Too bad Elisha's a total wimp. Um, well, anyway, uh, Elijah, Elijah uh, eventually this chariot of fire comes down and picks up Elijah and takes him off into heaven. And Elisha picks up his mantle and puts it on after ripping his own clothes because he's sad to see his master Elijah go. And all the people are watching. And they're like, well, Elijah's gone and there's Elisha. Too bad, we don't have power anymore. And Elisha walks up to the river throws the mantle over the river and the water parts. And everyone's like, oh, he's just like Elijah. Except he's got twice the power. That's, that's a great story. Um, now you say, Brett, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, um, <laughs> this is exactly where John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is, is ministering in the exact location of Elijah parting the river. That's right where Jesus would get baptized uh, isn't it interesting? What's, whose spirit would come upon John the Baptist? Elijah. Like this is, this is really cool how the Bible kind of fits all this stuff together. So why did John the Baptist, like people might ask you, why did John the Baptist go out? What does he think? He's Nacho Libre out in the wilderness. And he's going to do, you know, seek the Lord. Um, no, uh, Elijah was going out to the wilderness because that's the same place in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, that most powerful work of the Spirit, transferring the power from Elijah to Elisha, and also that same power would be transferred to John the Baptist, which is kind of amazing. Um, so I, I just wanted you to see that when it says, you know, I know that's a small mention, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance and for the remission of sins. Now, a couple other quick things. Um, you know, Luke emphasizes a few things Look, um, uh, that, I, that I want you to kind of see here. One, you know, one great emphasis that Luke puts in the, this particular gospel is the emphasis for all people to be saved. Let's, let's read on. Um, it says in verse, um, verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. How much flesh? All, not just the Jews. You see, the Messiah was such a Jewish thing to these people, and understandably so. In their prophecies, you'd almost just say, well, it's only for the Jews. So, well, but when you read further and see, even in the Old Testament, there's implication that he's gonna save all people of all kindreds, tongues, nations. That's the plan of God. But the Jews really largely missed that. But here's John the Baptist, one of the first guys on the scene to say, no, 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 this is, this is good news for everyone. We saw that, you know, back when the, um, the uh, angels were letting know, you know, the shepherds know, you know, uh, same message, fear not for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I'm so thankful as a Gentile that Jesus isn't just the savior of the Jews, but the savior to all people. 
Um, John the Baptist is gonna emphasize this. And Luke, by the way, the whole gospel of Luke is gonna emphasize that because remember, Luke is written for Gentile people. Uh, that's why this particular gospel uh, was written. Uh, so John is, is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses three through five, even as he says, as it is written in Isaiah, the words of Isaiah, you'll see in your margin, maybe next, next to that in your Bible, Isaiah 40, verse three through uh, five, really, is that section that he quotes about the voice crying in the wilderness uh, and that all flesh would be saved. That's, that's right there. Pretty cool stuff. Well, um, with that said, uh, verse seven, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We looked at this on Sunday just from the sermon intro. Uh, he started his sermon out uh, saying, you're a bunch of snakes. That's a tough sermon. That's a tough beginning. I'm not sure I'd have a job next Sunday if I started my sermon out. Um, by the way, uh, speaking of that, you know, um, there some of my favorite sermons are actually pretty fiery. When you hear old Charles Adam Spurgeon, he, he was able to eloquently speak fiery sermons, but he was able to do it with grace and, and kind of a good balance. Um, one of the biggest sermons that ever came across this country was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And um, that sermon was, was preached. He, he was actually kind of, a, from what I've read about him, um, you know, this Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon was, was he, when he delivered it, there was only like, you know, 50 people in the church that day. Um, and he, he didn't have a big, powerful, booming voice necessarily. Everybody thinks of Jonathan, oh, he must have been fiery and powerful, but he was actually quite feeble and, um, and not big voiced or anything. Where that sermon, what happened there is some, some people printed up his sermon in a little pamphlet and after the sermon was delivered, they printed it up in a little pamphlet and started handing it out. And it was the hist history people tell us that there would be people standing around the cities reading these little pamphlets, just sobbing and weeping. The, the power of that fire and brimstone sermon came out through the written form more than it did through the sermon form, which is kind of interesting. But that was kind of the first real enlightenment here in the United States when John, Jonathan Edwards preached a huge sermon uh, about the sin of humanity. Um, you know, and, and, and we talked about this on Sunday that um, to, to really enjoy the grace of God, you have to see the wrath of God. To understand that you've been imputed righteousness and to fully enjoy the, that, you have to understand um, that he demands righteousness. Um, so many people miss out on the, the balance of the two, um, that you have to have uh, the, the, you know, the wrath and understand that you know, there's hell and death and sin and judgment and righteousness, holiness. You have to understand that. Um, but if you just leave it there, then we're all doomed. But if you bring in the grace of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, it sweetens that up the more. When you know how bad it is that you're doing and where you're headed, and then you're saved by the grace of God, it, it totally makes it more beautiful. It's so sad that churches won't even mention hell uh, today. Uh, it was Spurgeon himself who, who made the comment, if a, church do, if a pastor is afraid or doesn't mention hell in his sermons, he should no longer be a pastor. Um, and Jesus talked about hell. Um, Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven, as it turns out. So uh, it's part of the Bible. And if you're leaving it out, you're not showing the, the full picture. 
a lot of people think you become a Christian so that you'll be happy and wealthy and healthy and everybody will like you and you'll be a community. It's all about community. No, it's not about that. Christianity is you're gonna go to hell unless you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And then when you receive Jesus, you don't go to hell. You get to go to heaven by God's grace through faith. Um, people, people that are afraid to mention hell, they, they, there's, they, they don't believe there's anything to be afraid of. Well, God is so loving. He's not gonna send anybody to hell. Hogwash. People send themselves to hell and God is reaching out the hand to say, I'll pull you up from the miry clay. I'll pull you out of the horrible pit. But if you're saying, I just believe God's gonna save me. He's reaching out and saving you through his son, Jesus Christ, where there's no other way to be saved. Um, that's why you and I as Christians, we need to be very bold when it comes to the gospel message. It's such a beautiful message. Um, but people need to know the bad before they can uh, really embrace and experience the good. But all that to say, uh, that's how he starts out his sermon. And then in verse eight, he goes on in the sermon, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the ax is laid under the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth forth um, not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Talk about fire brimstone sermon. Uh, who's he talking about? What are these trees that are gonna, the ax is gonna come and chop them down and throw them into the fire? These are these particular Jews that are standing there hearing the sermon. Now we have to be careful because there are those replacement theologians, those that believe the church has replaced Israel. They take this and say, see, God has cut down the Jews. He's chopped them down and thrown them in the fire. That's by the way, what Adolf Hitler used as his theology of exterminating 6 million Jews in World War II in the Holocaust. Um, it's a horrible doctrine. Replacement theology says the church has replaced Israel. Totally wrong. Um, we, if you read carefully the Bible, we are grafted into the vine of Israel. What happens if you graft a vine into a tree and then you chop that tree down? What happens to the grafted in vine? It dies. Do you see the problem with that theology? Um, God still has a plan for the Jews. Now the Jews, it's true. They've been rebellious, largely rejected the Messiah, but there's coming a time in Romans eleven twenty five 25, talks about when all of Israel will eventually be saved. Uh, after the second coming of Christ or during the tribulation period, the eyes of the Jews will be opened and uh, it's gonna be a whole different deal. But, um, but don't make the mistake of saying God's done with the Jew. Now, God is saying through John the Baptist, these specific Jews, unless they repent, they're gonna be cut down uh, individually um, as people. Uh, and if there's no good fruit, um, that's kind of the idea. Jesus would also say pointed things about hell and God's wrath. Um, and we see that here in John the Baptist. He's talking about these guys being cut down and thrown into fire if they bring no fruit. And Jesus would say the same thing about the tree that bears no fruit if you know your gospel message. So John the Baptist and Jesus would align obviously perfectly in their uh, theology. Now, one thing that um, they, they say here, John the Baptist tries to anticipate one of their arguments. Uh, who, who are you, John the Baptist, to say we're gonna be cut down? We're the seed of Abraham. That's the thing that they were resting on their laurels, thinking that they were all safe because they just were genetically or biologically or DNA related to Abraham. They think that they, they've got this idea in their heads that just because we're related to Abraham, we're safe. 
um, and we have nothing to worry about. See, that's what he says here. Um, and he says, you're a generation of vipers. Um, you know, for I say unto you, verse eight, um, that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Do you think he needs you guys? He could turn these rocks into children. Children of Abraham, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Um, and now the ax is laid to you guys that think you're, you know, you're safe, but the ax is laid there. Um, that's kind of an important thing. By the way, they, this, this pride of their linkage to Abraham uh, is a problem still to this day. And Jesus would even uh, deal with this. Would you flip over to John chapter eight? Keep your finger in Luke three, flip over to John eight. I wanna show you how radical this discussion of we're the children of Abraham kind of thing, uh, how, how far that actually goes. In John's gospel, chapter eight, they're hating Jesus, the Jews are. They're despising him and rejecting him. But there's this little back and forth that's pretty powerful here in John chapter eight. We'll start there in verse 31. John eight, verse 31, it says, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Boy, I love that. That's the true disciples. There were Jews that were starting to believe all that. Well, then there were some other Jews that were kind of part of that, but weren't quite believers yet. Um, verse 33, and they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? Question, um, did they forget a little part of their history? Yes. We've never been in bondage to any man. What about the 450 years you were slaves in Egypt? You know, like, like, like it's, it's very forgetful of these guys. We've never been in bondage to any man. Actually, the Jews were in bondage most of their history to some other nation. So it's, it's funny how when you're in the middle of your own sin and depravity, sometimes you don't even recognize what trouble you're in. That's the situation here. Um, how sayest you shall be made free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant or in bondage is the idea to sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now, you seek to kill me, a man that hath uh, told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now, <laughs> what are they saying? They're reminding Jesus that he was, well, they're trying to say he was illegitimately born. We're not, we weren't born of sexual immorality like you were, Mary not having a husband and she got pregnant. Like this made it all the way to Jerusalem. And these religious guys, these Jews are saying, at least we're not wacko like you that are born of fornication. Is this starting to get a little contentious? Oh, it gets worse. Let's read on. Verse 42, Jesus said unto them, if, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he that sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Bam. 
Jesus, this is a fire and brimstone sermon. You're, you're of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father will you do. He, has a, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he seeketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Do you think this gets him into a little trouble with the Jews by saying this? It's eventually what would, what would land Jesus on the cross, but he did that all willingly to die for the sins of, of, all, of all of humanity. The point that I make, do you see how the Jews like, Abraham's our father, we're good to go. And there's nothing you can say about that. Jesus is saying, yeah, whatever. Uh, your father's actually the devil. And the fact that your DNA is linked to Abraham means nothing. That's the problem with the Jews then. And that's still the problem with some Jews today. They think because they're Jews, they are just kind of chosen for whatever reason. When you go talk to even secular Jews uh, in Israel, the Jews know that they've been hated by so many different groups, but they also know that they've been particularly blessed um, scientifically, artistically, medically, uh, the arts, all the stuff that Jews have been so good at, better than any other people really in the world, they've been blessed. And by the, the Jews, the world has be, been blessed. Um, but they don't really know what the, the, the story is on that. So there tends to be actually sometimes some misguided pride, just the fact that they're Jews. That's what Jesus and John the Baptist were dealing with in this discussion about our father Abraham, you know, and stuff like that. And he says, ah, being Abraham's kids, God can make these rocks Abraham's kids. In other words, you're making too much of that, um, but you need to repent of your sin. That's, that's what John the Baptist is getting at there. Well, um, pretty heavy word there, but John the Baptist is diving in. So back to Luke chapter three, um, he starts talking about, so instead of being a sinner, uh, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, like he says there in verse eight. Um, Matthew chapter seven uh, reminds us, uh, Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that is, uh, brings forth uh, not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Sounds familiar? Uh, John the Baptist said that first, before Jesus did. Um, verse 20, wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Now, by the way, before we continue on with this verse, um, this is where, you know, it's funny, Matthew chapter seven says we're supposed to judge people by their fruit. And you see, is it good fruit from a good tree or corrupt fruit from a corrupt tree? Um, does anybody know what chapter of the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged? Matthew chapter seven, the same chapter. Well, which one is it, Brett? Jesus needs to make up his mind. Are we supposed to judge people or not? Um, the answer is yes. Um, it's, um, we're not to judge not lest you be judged. The idea of judging um, to uh, condemnation is not what any of us should be doing. Judging a person for condemnation. But we will identify them. It's judgment to identification. Is this good fruit or bad fruit? What, are you of a good tree or a bad tree? And this is what Jesus said. You will know them by their fruits. In other words, you're gonna be kind of like fruit inspectors. Is there fruit in a person's life? Um, and that's what Jesus, uh, so don't judge to condemnation. Um, so it says, you'll know them by the fruit. And, and he says, identify. But he goes on in, in, uh, in verse uh, 21 of this same section, if, if you keep reading. It says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the king kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? 
and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now that's a lot of Matthew 7, but I wanted you to see, um, this is all John the Baptist preparing the way to hear, for people to hear this from Jesus. And, and then Jesus would actually bring them the solution. This is again, a very scary New Testament scripture that says, man, am I gonna be one of those people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in thy name? Um, the key is to know, people need to know Jesus personally. And apart from Jesus, there's, there's uh, destruction. So, um, so all that to say, um, you know, what is John saying here in Luke chapter three? He's saying, bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance. In other words, repent means to turn 180 degrees, the opposite direction. Um, uh, but you gotta repent and go toward the Lord. Some people do a 90 degree turn, you know, in their life. Uh, okay, I'm an alcoholic, I'm gonna just turn a little bit. And we don't turn to the Lord, you turn to something else. It's gotta be a 180 degree turn to the Lord. That's what repentance is. And then that's scary verse, verse nine, every tree therefore which brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John's sermon here is pretty heavy, but remember his is a, a sermon to repentance. The goal is repentance. Um, but if you recall, um, the repentance doesn't get the full job done. Do you guys remember what we studied? Um, and that's why baptism, even last week we talked about John's baptism was very different than Jesus's baptism. John's baptism, we read about, uh, remember Paul in Acts 19, we talked about this uh, on Sunday. Uh, on Acts 19, you know, Paul said, were you filled with the Holy Ghost? We don't even know if there's a Holy Ghost. Are you kidding me? Then how were you baptized? Well, we were baptized in John's baptism. Wear some water. We gotta get you guys in the water and baptize you because you need to be baptized in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost the baptism that's identifying with Christ, not John's baptism of repentance. Um, so John's baptism was preparatory for Jesus and his baptism. That's important. Um, so we, we looked at that. Um, now, by the way, is it possible for a person to repent and still not be saved? Um, I think it, it, it is. Um, let's just take something simple. Let's say you're an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic. Um, and we saw that verse on Sunday, you know, that says if you continue there in Galatians, if you continue on in drunkenness and practice that sin, you will know in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's pretty scary. So you say, okay, I'm going to repent and stop being an alcoholic. And let's say you're successful in that and you stop being an alcoholic, and, uh, but you still have yet to accept Christ. This is the tragic thing, by the way, for AA. If you're an AA person, you know they've done some good work in addiction, with alcohol and stuff like that. Um, but when they started, they were so much better um, because they started with saying the higher power was Jesus Christ. Now in their dumb meetings, they say, uh, well, you just have to go to your higher power. Your higher power. What's a higher power? It's just whatever you think it is, a tree, a doorknob. <laughs> like, come on. Now, if you're an AA, don't quit. Uh, um, but can I just say, can I just say, don't make your higher power a doorknob. That's not gonna help you. Ever heard of the term deader than a doorknob? Um, your higher power has to be Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's like the repentance that takes you around and you've repented, but you're still going to hell. Because you can stop being a drunk today, good for you, but if you don't go to Jesus Christ, you're gonna to go to hell, which is a bazillion times worse than just being an alcoholic that's ruined their life here on this earth. You have to repent 
and then be saved. Um, repent and then be baptized, not unto repentance like John's people, but you have to repent and be baptized to Christ and the saving work of the cross. Um, so don't just repent. And by the way, if you've repented from alcohol and you're, you're, you've been sober for 10 years, but you still haven't accepted Jesus Christ, then there's a million other sins that can also doom you to hell. You have to repent from all of those. And unless you get them all, which you never can and never will, you're still doomed. That's why we gotta be saved by God's grace through faith, not of our own good works and what have you. So that's important, especially when you're reading John the Baptist. He's only gonna take it to repentance, but he's gonna stop there. Jesus is gonna pick up where John leaves off and it's all part of the plan. Uh, well, back to our text here, verse 10. The people hear this sermon. In verse 10 it says, and the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? Don't you love it? John's got him right where he wants him. They're all thinking, okay, we're horrible sinners, got it. What do we do? And this is interesting because you'll note this is not the answer for you and me. Uh, see if you can tell why. They're saying, so what should we do? And he answered and said unto them, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized. I guess the Democrats didn't want to. <laughs> no, remember, publicans are not Repu Republicans. They're, these are tax collectors. Um, so the publicans came to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And, or what shall we do? You know, the publicans. Verse 13, and he said unto them, exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, the tax collectors, the re reason everybody hated tax collectors is because the Romans made them collect taxes for the Roman Empire. And these publicans were Jews betraying their own people. And so they would charge them and then charge a percentage or even more, you know, like more than what was fair to pay for their services and they would pocket all the extra money. And those publicans would get really rich, but everybody hated the publicans because they were, you know, lining their own pockets. But they had the power and the authority of Rome to do it. So they hated him. So John the Baptist says, you know, don't take any more money than that which is appointed unto you by the Romans. In other words, be honest and don't be ripping people off. Verse 14, and the soldiers, there's actually soldiers standing there. The soldiers likewise demanded of him saying, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do, no, uh, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. He's, he's telling the Roman soldiers, uh, don't do, now, now before you become a pacifist, because of this verse. There's people that are pacifists because of this verse. John the Baptist told them to do no violence, so you gotta be a pacifist. Well, that's, that's a misconstruing of this. Um, you could read that John the Baptist knew these Romans would do um, um, extraordinary violence to people. They were known for being harsher than they should have been. And even, um, as it says here, uh, don't accuse anybody falsely. They would make up stories saying, well, this guy did this, so whack, whack, whack. They beat him up and leave him like dead on the street. It was horrible to be under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. And the Jews dealt with their dishonesty and their violence um, uh, uh, daily. And, and they also were not happy with uh, what they were doing there. They hated the fact that they were working in Judea when they should be back in Rome with their families or whatever. Um, and they didn't like their wages and stuff. So John the Baptist says, stop being violent to, to everybody um, and uh, don't tell false lies about people and, and be content with your wages. That's, that's a, a, quite an interesting word. Um, and verse 15, as the people were in expectation, 
And all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. What makes them think he's the Messiah, the Christ? That's the word Christos, the Messiah, the King. Um, what makes them think that? Because his words are so different than everybody else's, just like Jesus would be. But Jesus would not say the same thing. John, remember John the Baptist preaching to repentance. That means stop doing evil things. Question, would this save those people? If, if the Romans stopped being violent and it was okay with his wages and stopped telling lies about people, would he go to heaven? No, remember, don't make this mistake. This is where people don't interpret biblical writings correctly when they start saying, well, if you just be good, this is where people think, well, if I just, my good outweighs my bad, maybe I'll be saved. That's not what, what John the Baptist was preaching. He was preparing the way for when the Messiah would come and the ultimate real salvation would come. Very important to not um, misconstrue this. So um, very important. Um, now, everybody's in suspense and uh, verse 15, it says, the people were expectation. Your, your margin might even read the word suspense. It was suspenseful. Is this the Messiah? John the Baptist, this guy. He must have had something about him. I'd say it was being filled with the Holy Spirit where people thought this is powerful. Whatever's happening here right now, this is powerful. And they, they knew that something was brewing. But uh, look at what verse, verse 16 says. John answered saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Uh, this, so you got this guy who's fiery and powerful and speaking things and everything. Is this the Christ? He's like, there's one coming after me that I'm not even worthy to loose the shoe sandal latchet. Um, they must have been even more in, in anticipation. What did it mean that Jesus would be uh, baptizing them, not just with water, but with the Holy Ghost and with fire? Um, baptism with the Holy Ghost. Some people have a problem with that. There's only one baptism, bread. It's baptism in Christ and water. Yeah, but it says he'll baptize you in the Holy Ghost. What is that? Well, call it what you will. Some of my favorite pre preachers from old said, we don't believe in baptism of the Holy Ghost, but they were filled with the Holy Ghost whether they liked it or not. Um, the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Ghost? It's, it's really to have the Holy, Sp Holy Spirit come upon you, epi. Uh, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's what it means. So Jesus would come and he'd even say, John 14, John 16, I'm, it's good that I'm leaving you because I'm gonna send after me my comforter, capital C, the spirit of truth who will remind you in all truth. He'll fill you and convict you of sin. And he'll, you know, the, the, Jesus lists all the beautiful things the Holy Spirit's gonna do for the church. So to be baptized with the spirit means to have the power of the spirit upon your life. He, he's coming to do that, but also with fire. He's coming with fire. Um, now, what's interesting about that, you say, well, what kind of fire is it? Because uh, um, maybe it's the fire of the Holy Spirit. Remember when they spoke with tongues in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost, what was hovering over their heads? Tongues of fire. So some people say, so they're baptized with the Holy Ghost and with the flames of the Holy Ghost. I think there might be something else being said here. Maybe the fire of wrath and judgment. Oh, no, no, Brett, the context here is, yeah, but let's keep reading. It says in verse 17, um, you know, baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff 
He will burn with fire, unquenchable, and many other things in his exhortation, preached he to the people. <laughs> so maybe he was saying, I wouldn't die on the battlefield saying it wasn't the fire of the Holy Spirit there in verse uh, 16. But if I had to make a decision, I'd probably say he's talking about the wrath because look at verse 17. He says that that fire is gonna be unquenchable. Um, that word unquenchable is kind of an interesting word. You know what the Greek word is for unquenchable? Asbestos. <laughs> That's an interesting Greek word, isn't it? Um, and, and what did we use asbestos for? To all die? Um, no. Um, but asbestos was uh, a substance we made that was actually uh, hopefully fire resistant. But th that's the idea is um, there's no, nothing. You could wear, you know, a fire resistant suit, uh, but the fire's still gonna get you. That's what Jesus, uh, you know, that's what John the Baptist, I should say, is talking about. Um, unquenchable, uh, that is eternal hell and fire is what I believe he's talking about there. By the way, um, the psalmist, Psalm chapter one, says this. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water to bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whosoever, uh, pardon me, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. John the Baptist, when he talks about the, the chaff of the wheat there in verse 17 of our text, he might be reaching back to this imagery of Psalm 1. By the way, we just read a whole chapter in Psalms tonight. Uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6, whole chapter. And that chapter tells us that it's, uh, the Lord's gonna drive the ungodly like chaff. And if you know the way they did it, they'd, they'd harvest the wheat, they'd pull the kernels off the stalks and get it all in a big pile. And then they would you know, thresh their wheat by throwing their wheat up in the air. And then the chaff, that's the part you don't want. It's the part, like you know when you have popcorn and you're throwing in popcorn and then you get one of those husks or whatever in your popcorn, you're like, oh man, it gets between your teeth and it's just not very fun part of popcorn. Um, well, that's like the chaff of the wheat. It's, waste, it's a waste of time. It, it makes the wheat bad. So you gotta separate the chaff from the wheat. You do that by throwing it up in the air, the chaff floats away because it's lighter and the wind blows it and then the wheat just falls down into the pile. What did they do with the chaff? They would use it to be fire starter. <laughs> they, they would pile up the chaff that would blew off and they'd rake it up and put it in a pile and say, oh, we'll use it just for fire starting. But the wheat was the fruit that, was, that was, they were looking for. Um, the, the, uh, the point is, John the Baptist is using the imagery of the psalmist of the Bible, kind of cool. Well, quickly, verse 19, uh, but Herod, the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now, Luke's commentary gives us the shortest description of what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew 14 gives us a really full description. Mark chapter six does a good job. But it's funny, Luke, of all things, doesn't really go into this that much. Um, this is sort of an, an, an aside uh, to note something to the reader. This hasn't actually happened yet. In other words, we're gonna read more about John before he goes to prison. But he's just saying, um, in the same vein that 
John the Baptist was preaching against sin for everybody else. He was preaching against Herod the Tetrarch uh, and his bad marriages and the sinful lifestyle. And it eventually would land him in prison where he'd eventually be killed. So that hasn't happened yet, but that's sort of an aside of what coming attractions. So just kind of a side note there. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. This is the baptism of Jesus. Uh, it, it, you know, um, Notice that Jesus was praying. It says, people miss this. Uh, it says, Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened up. So that's why you might wonder, why does A.C. Creek with a pastor stand in the water and pray with the person before they get dunked in the, in the water? I was a Catholic and I didn't have this. Cert well, hey, um, I, I believe there's different ways to baptize people. Um, A.C. Creek, we do it in the way we, we see as most probably like what, what baptism of the Bible looked like. Um, I'm pretty sure they didn't do a fancy little sprinkling. Um, although we've done baptisms where we cover all the bases. We've done it out in the rain. So we're in the rain, in the river, dunking and sprinkling all at the same time. But, um, um, but you know, the imagery of baptism is that being buried with Christ in the, in the water and then coming up a new creation in Christ. The sprinkling doesn't really show that as much. The sprinkling only shows kind of the washing type element. But I do like... Um, and some people say, well, I don't need to be baptized by anybody. Well, Jesus saw the need to be baptized by John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist said, I can't do this. I'm not even worthy to open your latch of your sandal. Um, but Jesus said, do this to fulfill all righteousness. So we feel that it's good to have one of the leaders in the church, an elder, pastor, uh, leadership guy in, in the church to, um, to be the one that's there doing the baptizing it doesn't matter which leader or who the leader is um, because it's more about what you're doing, this outward sign. But um, we learn a lot from this. Uh, you know, there's three events that happen here. Heaven's opened. The Holy Ghost comes down as a screeching eagle. Oh, wait a minute. That's wrong. Uh, that's what, if you go to Bethel and you say the Holy Ghost, it's a screeching eagle or a dodo bird or I could show you videos this is the Holy Ghost stuff where people go crazy with the Holy Ghost and then nobody wants any part of it. Brother, why are you bashing Bethel? Because Bethel, not only do they do crazy stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit, their doctrine is, is a different Jesus. I gotta tell you. Um, and you have to be really careful when it comes to that. I've done whole teachings on why you have to be careful with some of these churches. But the main thing is there's a diminishing of Jesus and a glorifying of yourself with a lot of these more Pentecostal, uh, like, like sort of the Rodney Howard band, the Toronto Blessing, all the way to their grandchild, Bethel. Um, it, it's all something you have to be careful. I love that the Holy Spirit is not a screeching eagle or a chicken. It's, it's actually a dove, a dove. Isn't that a perfect, the, the, the Holy Spirit is not uh, uh, ugly or weird or having a fire tunnel in the church where people are like, it's so weird what people make up. Do that which is in the Bible. As soon as you're pounding the stage with a, a staff of, uh, who's the guy on Lord of the Rings? Gandalf. As soon as you're hitting your stage with a staff saying, uh, you know, whatever, yeah, thou shalt not pass, demanding against racism, you know the church is a little misguided. You guys are making me nervous. You're like, no, oh, that sounds perfectly legitimate. <laughs> Um, that's what Bethel did uh, with all the pastors on the stage. 
Um, that's not the way you handle racism. Um, um, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I love the nature of the Holy Spirit. Don't let humanity in our weirdness diminish what the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit is in the form of a dove. I love that. Um, well, uh, all that to say, we got the heaven opened, Holy Ghost is a dove, the Father speaks and booms from heaven. This is a big event, Jesus getting baptized. Um, by the way, the heavens were opened and God spoke in Jesus' baptism, but he also did that on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you recall there in Matthew 17, Mark chapter nine, uh, where God booms from heaven concerning Jesus and all that, so important. Well, um, uh, before we uh, get all into that, it says in verse, uh, or go further, I guess. Uh, let, let's, so when did Jesus get baptized? Um, it says, verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Um, now, before we get into this genealogy, I know this is the most interesting part of the service tonight, but um, notice Jesus was 30 when he got baptized. What, what is the proper age for a person to be baptized? It's um, a good question, isn't it? Uh, some of you think, oh, baby, we just took care of it right out of the gate. Uh, we just went to church, had him anoint that baby. Um, the Bible doesn't show anywhere where infant baptism is scriptural. The, the Bible talks about repent and be baptized, which takes a cognitive understanding of an adult type thinking. Um, now, we'll baptize children as long as the children are old enough to say, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And mom and dad, don't be well-meaning and tell Junior, who's you know, four years old, come on, impress Pastor Brett with your Bible knowledge of baptism so that you can get baptized. You don't wanna do a disservice to your kid. Your kid needs to be old enough to where when they're 25 or 35 or 65, they're not saying, man, I wish I would have got baptized later because I know what a wretched, miserable sinner I am now. I didn't know how bad it would be. Did you know what a wretched, miserable sinner you were gonna be at seven? What about 12? No, 18? Oh, you're starting. You're start, just starting to understand what a wretched, miserable sinner at 18. Just a crack, just scratching the surface. Um, I wonder if Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and waited till he was 30 because it is funny. 30 is an interesting age, isn't it? It's an age when you start realizing, oh man, I'm an adult. <laughs> I'm getting older. It's all downhill from here. Or uphill, depending on your <laughs> perspective. Um, interesting, you know, in, in Bible times, in the Old Testament, 30 years old, the priest would serve, the priest, priesthood, they would start to serve in the temple and they'd be in training from 20 to the age of 30. That's the book of Leviticus. Um, Joseph um, was before Pharaoh uh, when he was 30. Uh, David began to reign when he was 30. Um, um, kind of, and you know, there's some interesting 30-year-old marks in the Bible, but the priest would serve, by the way, from 20 to 30 as, as sort of training. And then from 30 to 50, they do the, the, they were the heavy lifters. And then from 50 and onward, they would train all the younger priests. That's the way they rolled. Um, but um, kind of interesting here. Now, with all that said, I think parents, it's better to wait until your kids are saying, mom, I, I don't care what you tell me, I'm gonna go get baptized. I need to be baptized. And once they're convincing you, um, then that's when you know they're ready. But if you're the one sort of, oh, come on, go get baptized. Come on, make your grandma happy. That's not a good situation there. You gotta fix that. Well, this genealogy, this, this will be exciting. Are you guys ready? So we already started, um, you know, Jesus is around 30 years old. 
um, the son of Joseph and the son of Heli. Now, um, there's some things here that like, he, or Eli is actually the better uh, word there. Um, but the thing about this, um, about the genealogy, before we read this, I want you to know some things. First of all, Matthew has a genealogy because Matthew presents Jesus as what? Anybody remember? Jesus as king. Yeah, sounds like, yeah, yeah. Jesus as king. Uh, maybe we need to go back and redo Matthew. No. Jesus as king, and a king must have the proper pedigree to be on the throne, right? Would you agree with that? Mark presents Jesus as servant, and there's no genealogy. Why? Because nobody cares what the genealogy of a servant is. It's kind of interesting. Luke presents Jesus, we've already talked about this, as the son of man in his humanity. Um, and it's helpful to know from whence a man comes. So Luke also has a genealogy, but it's gonna be a little different genealogy than the one in Matthew. John presents Jesus as the son of God, rendering genealogy impossible, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? So that's why, that's why John doesn't have a, a genealogy. Luke does presenting Jesus as the son of man. And you're gonna see the difference in that here in Luke's presentation. Now, um, where the, the genealogies go sort of different, verses 31 that we're about to read, if you kind of look forward, 31 through 38 of Luke's account are the exact same as Matthew's account because Mary and Joseph were both descendants of David. Um, but Luke's account from verses 23 all the way to verse 31 that we're about to read differs from Matthew's because Matthew's um, traces the line through David's son, Solomon, uh, to, you remember Coniah, or his name was Jeconiah, if you were with us back then, reading that. Um, and then, do you remember there was a problem? What, what happened to Jeconiah? Anybody remember? Blood curse. His line would be cursed. Uh, and anyone after him would be cursed to not be able to be like uh, rightfully heir to the throne. That's kind of a shocker. Um, the line of Jeconiah. And guess what? Matthew goes through the line of Jeconiah. So therefore also Joseph was technically in line to take the throne if there indeed was a throne to be given, which there wasn't, but spiritually he could, couldn't do so because he was of the cursed line in Joseph's uh, genealogy. So what happens? Um, the term son of, by the way, uh, when it says, you know, which was the son of um, in, the, in the original language, um, could also be son-in-law, which, which is something you should note. Therefore Luke's account is actually gonna be Mary's genealogy. Um, and, and as seen in verse 31, we'll, we'll stop there, I'll show you. Mary's genealogy is traced from, not from David through Solomon, but through Solomon's brother, Nathan, an uncursed line. Um, this means that um, if you trace the royal line legally, ignoring the curse of the Old Testament, you could conclude that Jesus has the right to the throne through the line of Joseph. But if you believe the Jeconiah line was cursed and you don't want Jesus to be the king through Joseph's line, Mary's genealogy bypasses the curse altogether, therefore legally um, and spiritually uh, leading to Jesus having the rightful uh, ownership to the throne. The only person in all of history who could possibly fulfill both lines is Jesus. That's kind of shocking. Let's read verse 24. It says, um, so you got Joseph, which was the son of Heli, um, which was the son of uh, Mattat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which is the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Matt uh, Matthias, 
which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Nahum, which was the son of uh, Esli, which was the son of Nagi. Anybody having children uh, pregnant? Here's some names for your, you know, delight. Bible, hey, here, Nagi, Nagi. Verse 26, which was the son of um, Maath, which is the son of Mattathias, which was the son of uh, Semei, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of uh, Risa, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Shalathiel, which was the son of Neri, which uh, was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Adai, which was the son of Kosam, which was the son of Elmo, uh, had a high voice, was on Sesame Street. Oh no, sorry, Elmo Dan, which was the son of Ur. They were trying to name him. What should we name him, Ur? Uh, Ur, uh, Ur. <laughs> sorry, verse 29. Which was the son of Josie, which was the son of Eliezer, which was the son of Joram, which was the son of Mattathat, uh, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonan, which was the son of Eliakim, which was the son of Meliah, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of Mattathat, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. Okay, now stop right there. Or to David, and like I said, this is where the genealogy takes a twist here, from you know um, to kind of a different thing. Um, so, um, so where you also see this is um, where the genealogy. Uh, let's just kind of make a chart here, so we can kind of just understand real quick. I'm almost done. Uh, we're going to go home here in a second. But um, through Joseph lineage and Mary's, the first thing um, written to the Jews, Mary's lineage written to the Greeks. That's kind of important. Um, the Matthew genealogy moves forward from Abraham and Luke's, notice it goes backward to Adam. So we're going backward in Luke's genealogy. That's kind of important to, to do the compare and contrast. Um, and then, um, and then uh, the lineage to the, uh, to the throne is through the line of Solomon in Matthew's, but through the line of Nathan, which solves the curse problem that we just talked about. So that's kind of important. Now, verse 32 which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Boaz, which was the son of Salmon, which was the son of Naasin, which was the son of Aminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Ezram, which was the son of Perez, which was the son of Judah. Um, by the way, verse 32 is the whole Boaz, Ruth, that beautiful story uh, from the book of Ruth. Um, so, uh, so you got verse 34. Uh, which was the son of Jacob, which was son of Isaac, which was son of Abraham, which was son of Terah, which was the son of Nacor. So you, we go through Abraham. Now we're going beyond uh, lineage. The, Jew, the Jews' lineage really stops at Abraham. Uh, they didn't care about anything before Abraham. But Mary's line and the Greek Gentile genealogy of Luke, it's gonna go way past Abraham. That's kind of important to note which was the son of Terah, uh, Nacor, verse 35, which was the son of Saruk, which was the son of Ragu. Later he made some really great pasta sauce, um, uh, Ragu, um, which was the son of Phalek, which was the son of Heber, which was the son of Selah, which was the son of Cainan, which was the son of Arphaxad, which was the son of Shem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Mahalil, he's the first Hawaiian guy, um, which was the son of Cainan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, 
which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Uh, this is great because um, this lineage does line up um, with, with um, what, a, what a person of the, of the Gentile race would say. Yeah, but what about us? Mary covers that. Um, also, it ends with Adam. That's important because uh, Paul would make the point in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, you know, that uh, the first Adam was the first living soul that dropped the Adam bomb of sin, but the last Adam would be Jesus, who would be the one who'd give be the quickening spirit. And so we see that. Um, all of these genealogies, there's more we could talk about this genealogy, but um, of all that, um, I love how the Bible crosses all the T's and dots all the I's and has everything covered. Uh, no matter what line you take, Mary or Joseph, it all still works out. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, amen? Amen. 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 Lord, as we close our Bibles tonight, would you uh, just again, cause us to be uh, just impressed by your word. It's always true, always right. Um, and we thank you for the power of your word. May it bring forth good fruit in our lives, Lord. We know that we're, um, we're to repent of our sins and then to be saved. And then once we are saved, um, we get to be uh, followers of your son and, and obedient to your word. And I pray that you'd give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Just seeing the truth of your word, may we just walk in your truth, Lord. So bless these your people as we go our way now. In Jesus' name, amen.